Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul states it in this way, and starting in verse 12, he says, If Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Folks, if the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is not true, what in the world are we doing here on Labor Day weekend? Honestly. Why would we even go to church? Why do we give money? Why do we even participate in any activity at all? If the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ did not take place, we are really, really missing it. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. To preach Christianity meant to the apostles in particular, and you're going to see this in the life of Paul and Acts, to preach the resurrection. The resurrection is the central theme in every Christian sermon reported in the Acts. The resurrection and its consequences were the gospel or the good news which the Christians brought. Wrote that in his book, chapter 16, in his book, Miracles. The resurrection is a central theme, folks. It's not just a side theme. It's not just a nice story. It's not just something that we visit at Easter. It's something we get to live every day. And it ought to change the focus of our lives. It ought to change the purpose of why we do what we do. It ought to cause us to recognize that there's something more to this life than we're living for. That we are investing in eternity, not just temporality, not just the now. We are looking towards what God has promised and we get to enjoy it along the way. The resurrection of the Lord is the central life message of the gospel of grace. You catch that? This this resurrection. When we talk about the resurrection, Jesus Christ resurrecting from the dead, standing up again, is absolutely the central life message of the gospel of grace. Without the resurrection, as Paul puts it in Corinthians, if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Misplaced faith, trust, belief. Look at Acts chapter 24, verses 1 And following, this is an interesting time. Paul has been falsely accused, is being falsely accused at this particular point. He's been brought to Caesarea to stand trial in effect with a hearing before Felix, the governor of the area. Remember, he's been been rescued by the Roman soldiers. 200 foot soldiers, 70 spearmen, you know, all kinds of horsemen. He's on horseback. They usher him up to Caesarea. He's brought before Felix. And in chapter 24, verses 1 and following, we start to watch what happens here. And I think this is an important note because Paul's message, in effect, his defense, is that he's on trial for the resurrection. Beautiful truth here. After five days, the high priest Ananias, Paul's already been there. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders, with an attorney named Tertullus. And they brought charges to the governor against Paul. 
And after Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, this is Felix, since we have, through you, attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. Gag me. Just, oh. I mean, you talk about putting it on, right? Peace through Felix. (laughs) What a joke. I mean, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? People that like to spin things love this kind of stuff. The pontification. Crazy. You know what they're doing is basically they're, they're threatening Felix. I don't know if you catch this or not, but that's just the story behind the story. They're reminding him, oh, we, we've got peace right now. And they're about to accuse Paul of stirring up dissension all through the Roman world. And Felix, it's through you that we've got this peace, and we acknowledge that. And you're so great, Felix. We love you, Felix. You're such a friend to Israel, Felix. But we want to remind you, Felix, that we have some power as well. So there's a veiled threat here. A reminder of the importance of peace, the need for peace, the desire for peace. Does this sound familiar, folks? Peace, 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 peace. This isn't peace. This isn't peace. They appeal to Felix's work via reforms, all these reforms that he's done. Again, there's a veiled threat here to the idea of Things being undone that have been supposedly successful. Felix, you've had a lot of success. We've followed along with you. Remember, the Sadducees were very much in link, very much arm in arm with the Romans. They didn't believe in the resurrection, all that kind of stuff. So they aligned themselves politically with the Romans. And so here's Ananias, who is a Sadducee, and he's come with Tertullus and a group of guys in order to bring charges against Paul, and he's standing before Felix, and he's reminding them, this is veiled code language. We have supported you, Felix. You better support us. Don't miss that. This is venom. This is venom. It's interesting that Tertullus is accusing Paul. Because in Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 through 11, we know who the accuser is. Same word that's used here. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation, the power, the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before our God day and night. Folks, don't miss this. This is a satanic threat against not only Paul, but if you go past Paul, to the gospel of God's grace, ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is a rejection of the gospel of grace. This is a rejection of the Messiah by religious leaders. This is an absolute abject rejection of anything and everything that the prophets and that the Moses proclaimed and prophesied about concerning the Christ. This is an abject rejection to salvation in Christ alone. The need of being forgiven of sin. That's what this is. So verse 4, they continue. (laughs) I would love to know what was going through Felix's mind. 
Oh, great. Here we go, you know. Man, all the pomp and circumstance. Do y'all like that kind of stuff? Because I can't stand it. It just, it just grates me. Anytime I see something like that or anytime I'm a part of something like that, I, I just, I don't know, there's something that rises up on me. It's probably flesh, and it just, just gets all over me. Are you like that? I just can't stand it. I love when people are just honest and real, you know? I don't like pomp circumstance. I certainly don't like fake. Fake just is nauseating. Verse 4, I'm just letting you know that. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm on my soapbox this morning. I just don't like it. Ugh. Verse 4. <laughs> yeah, I better get on track here. My wife is going to faint. I don't know. Verse 4. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. I mean, this guy, he fits right in Congress. Can I just say it? He really does. Oh. He does. For we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple and then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law. Wow. There's again a veiled threat, right? Why are we even here, Felix? You've given us the right in order to take care of anybody that desecrates our temple. Anybody that takes the court, you've given us the right as Romans. You have empowered us as the Jewish people in order to, to bring these people to justice that would do that. We're allowed to kill them. Again, it's, that's another veiled threat. It's a reminder. Verse 7, but Lysias, the commander, came along. Now listen to this. This is hilarious. You talk about how Lysias twisted things up in order to make sure that he wasn't blamed for about beating a Roman citizen without a trial. Look how this guy twists what Lysias does. And remember, Lysias isn't here yet. I would have loved to, loved to see Lysias' veins popping out of his neck as he's listening to this guy, you know? Just give me a sword. But Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. And by examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. What's going on here? Well, fundamentally, they're breaking their own law. Exodus chapter 20 or of Deuteronomy, you can look at Deuteronomy chapter 5 where it goes through the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bear false witness. What are they doing? They're totally twisting things. Remember the pretzel? They're totally twisting it in order to lie about Paul and what he did. Lysias came and rescued Paul. He didn't create the violence. He may have used violence in order to get Paul out of there and rescue him, but he wasn't the one that originated. They weren't just having a nice little sit-down meeting where they had Starbucks on one side and, and some tea on the other side, and they were having hearing about whether what they should try Paul and put him to death for bringing a Gentile into the court. They weren't doing that. There was a massive mob. The whole reason Lysias got involved is because there was violence already taking place, and Paul was being beaten almost to death. So they twisted around. We didn't create this. Paul did. And Lysias, your guy, your commander, came in here and with much violence stirred things up. Shalt not bear false witness. I mean, to hear Tertullius 
talk about it. You would think they were having this orderly trial and everything was perfectly fine. And when Lysias showed up with his men, everything broke loose. No, no, no. Folks, hear me on this because there's nothing new under the sun. Religious flesh will always seek to adjust the truth in order to accomplish whatever cause is seen as vital. Religious flesh will always adjust the truth. Our religious flesh will always Well, we didn't exactly do it the way we're supposed to, but boy, did it work out well. Folks, that's, that's not the issue here. See, what happens is, is we get our eyes on the fruit. We get our eyes on the end. We get our eyes on the cause. And in the midst of it all, we forget that we're supposed to be following the Lord and trusting him to take care of the end or the fruit or the cause. We, in our religious flesh, we may be sincere, but if we're not walking by faith, which means day by day, moment by moment, trusting him to empower us, to transform us, to reveal himself through us, to give us the very plans that we need step by step, moment by moment, in order to accomplish whatever it is that he chooses for us. If we don't have that as our focus, then what happens is, is we begin to declare that something is so vital that it doesn't matter how we get it done as long as it gets done. And in the process, we cut God right out of it. And that's, that's exactly what these religious leaders are doing. They're twisting truth. They're lying. Because they have in their mind that they have a stamp of approval from God to get something done. And in the midst of it, they reveal something about themselves. They ultimately reveal that they don't know God at all. Folks, we got to be careful about that. In our day and age, in our culture, we have a lot of causes that are good, that are right. But in the midst of walking with the Lord, we need to learn to trust him. We need to learn to walk with him. We need to learn his ways are truly higher than our ways. And God doesn't have to give us the answer when we demand it of him. What we do is step by step, moment by moment, trust him, walk with him, yield to him. And in effect, we say, Lord, you're the Lord. Have thy way. That's the issue. Well, Felix turns to Paul. He listens to all this stuff, and clearly he wants Paul's report. Verse 10, he says, When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. I love this. Paul didn't mince words. He didn't spend time flattering did he? He just simply acknowledges that Felix has been a judge for Israel for years. He doesn't appeal to Felix's flesh. Paul's already written Romans at this point. Romans chapter 13, 1, he's written this. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Paul believes that, clearly. 
He's written it, inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so, and he's encouraging believers, submit to the governing authorities. And that's what he's doing here. He doesn't go into all this pontificating. He doesn't go into all this flattery. He just acknowledges a pretty simple fact. You've been a judge for years. And so I cheerfully make my defense before you. Because he knows that God's in control over Felix. Well, in verse 12, he says, Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. What's interesting here is that there are no witnesses present who are able to verify the charges being brought against Paul. What they're saying is, Paul, you created this huge mess mess that took place in Jerusalem, but none of the witnesses are there. Nobody's there to actually verify the facts. Paul makes it clear he had not stirred up any dissension, not only in the temple, but in any of the synagogues, nor in the city itself. If, If there was any blame concerning riots, he had not caused this. He was there with a group of men. He had been purified in a ceremony, and he was being respectful of the law. He had not taken a Gentile into the court. And as a result of some people lying about what he was doing, some Jews from Asia who came in and lied about it, who were not at this hearing, he began to be beat, and this whole riot takes place. And we end up where we're at. God, I love verse 13. He says, but this I admit to you. So Paul's very careful here. He's, he's acknowledging Felix as the governor. He acknowledges him as the one who's in authority. He makes it very clear, I didn't do the things that are being charged about me. But then he says this, but this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. Why the riots? Why the mob? Why the hearing? Why is he there? Because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection. Because of the religious argument that has taken place concerning the Messiah. The resurrection being the absolute foundational argument. Proof of that truth. It's interesting that he brings out several beliefs here. He brings out the fact that all that is in the law and the prophets, he's believed that. Clearly, the Sanhedrin, Ananias, and the rest that are there, they say that they believe those things. What Paul's saying is everything that is written in the law and the prophets, everything that Moses had to say concerning the coming of the Messiah, everything that the prophets had to say about the coming of the Messiah, I believe it. He says that he's got a hope in God. Verse 15. He says that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Again, verse 15. He's acknowledging certain facts, certain religious beliefs that maybe Ananias doesn't necessarily hold to, but that every individual who's a Jew has been taught from the time they were born 
concerning the law and the prophets. He also says that he does his best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and men. What a beautiful truth. Would that be said of all of us? That in everything that we do, in everything that we, we say we're doing for the Lord, everything that we actually do for the Lord, that there would be this idea that we are blameless in our conscience before the Lord, that we are following him full-heartedly. There's no compartmentalization of our lives. There's no coming to church and acting one way on Sunday morning and then going and living whatever way we want the rest of the week. There's no living certain ways at home and then living certain ways at work and then coming to church and putting the facade on. It's blameless all the way through because in our conscience before the Lord as we follow him, we are seeking to walk with him and our whole lives, all that we are is bent on that effort beautiful truth. All of this is summed up and established through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that he believes. He continues in verse 17 and he states why he had even come to Jerusalem in the first place, which is fascinating. After several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. Why did he do that? Because he was helping the poor believers who were Christians in Jerusalem. Who had given the money? The Gentiles had. Gentile Christians. And Paul was simply passing this on. Verse 18, which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me. See, the Jews from Asia are the ones that stirred this whole thing up. And they falsely accused Paul. And as a result, the whole mob scene takes place. They weren't there at the hearing. Verse 20 says, or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among, among them, for the resurrection of the dead I am on trial before you today. Remember, uh, they wanted to find out, Lysias wanted to find out what is going on here. And so he, made, he had the whole Sanhedrin come and he had Paul come before them. And Paul recognizes that the Sadducees are there and the Pharisees are there. So he basically says to him, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. And immediately the Pharisees and Sadducees are at it. And Lysias had to rescue Paul out of it because he was concerned they were going to rip him apart. Who's creating the problem? Certainly not Paul. Verse 22, but Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. Lysias wasn't there. He had sent the note. But now Felix is going to call for him and say, okay, Lysias, let's back this story up. And then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody. That's Paul. And yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. So Felix, in effect, calls a recess. He wants Lysias to come in and give testimony to what's going on here. He doesn't... Not necessarily take Ananias, Tertullus, and those who are with him. Uh, he doesn't take their word for everything. He recognizes there's some things here. Uh, and he, because of his knowledge of the way, of the Christian teaching of the truth, uh, he recognizes there's some things here that aren't uh, going together. And so he understands that. And I think he's pretty wise in that. Felix concludes by having Paul placed under house arrest. And he gives specific instructions that he is to have his friends able to minister to him. Let me ask you something. 
Why was Paul so bold? Why was Paul so bold? How do our beliefs change the way we act? How do our beliefs change what we do, what we say, how we live? I I would suggest to you that there's one reason why Paul was so bold. Clearly the Holy Spirit is empowering him. Clearly he has a walk with the Lord. Amen. But his belief system was focused on one fact. And it is that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely true. I wonder if maybe the reason we're not so bold is because we actually really don't believe it. We say we believe it, but we give mental acknowledgement to something. Do we actually believe it? Are we willing to stake our entire eternity on that fact? Are we able to recognize that Jesus Christ truly did rise again from the dead, and as a result, our whole lives ought to be altered? What we live for is completely different. How we walk, where we go, why we do what we do should be completely different. Because when we recognize that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is true, that it's a fact, then we recognize that Jesus Christ truly is the Lord. And as a result, we answer to him. Now that changes, or it should change, our lives. It should change our lives. It should change the way we use our money. It should change the way we look at life. It should change the temporal perspective to an eternal perspective. And everything that we do, everything that we say, should come under that umbrella. Has it? Well, Josh McDowell, I'm sure you've heard of him, and some others, I want to just share with you the the facts of the resurrection. Do we know that the resurrection actually took place? I've heard people uh, say, well, no, we don't really know. We don't even know that Jesus Christ is a true historical figure. It was just made up. Really? And and I'll ask them, well, why why do you say that? Well, I've never met him. (laughs) Have you ever met George Washington? Do you believe in George Washington? I mean, you know, you, you can go to so many lengths on this thing, you know. Josh McDowell puts it this way. He says, after more than 700 hours of studying this subject, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is either one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted on the minds of human beings, or it is the most remarkable fact of history. (laughs) There's really no in-between ground. It's either an utter hoax or it's an absolute fact. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, nothing is more central to the Bible than Jesus' death and resurrection. He wrote this in his preface to Scandalous, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. He says, the entire Bible pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. Wow. That's amazing. Do <laughs> I feel like it ought to be Easter today, right? I mean, think about this. Every day we have the opportunity of walking with a risen Lord because the resurrection is a historical, absolute, indisputable fact. 1 Corinthians 15.4, it's a great chapter. Read it, underline it. But I love what Paul says about the resurrection in this. 
Just this one verse I think is really important. All of them are, but I love this part. He says that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. He's talking about the resurrection. He was raised on the third day. And he says this little phrase, according to what? The scriptures. According to the scriptures. Now, folks, I would encourage you to get online and look up Josh McDowell's uh, website and all the different proofs that there are for the resurrection. You can look up D.A. Carson. You can look up Gary Habermas. You can look up Lee Strobel. Yeah, I mean, there's so much information concerning the resurrection. Gary Habermas in particular, he's a professor at Liberty University. He is the standing expert on the resurrection. It is indisputable that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is a historical fact. It's not just something that we can look at and say, well, maybe, maybe not. No, no, no. It's absolutely indisputable. And it ought to change our lives. It ought to change everything that we're about. Because when we understand that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is an indisputable fact that Jesus Christ truly raised again from the dead, then what Jesus said about himself is an indisputable fact, which is that I and the Father are one. That no man comes to the Father except through me. Salvation and our eternity is based on whether we believe that or not. That's incredible. Yeah, amen. Are we sharing that? Are we walking in that? Is that the picture of our lives? That becomes the point. We see people all around. We live in an area where what? 96% don't even go to church. The other 4%, somewhere in that range, are a whole mix of belief systems. From Mormons to Southern Baptists to Catholic, whatever. I mean, folks, every day we run into somebody who needs to hear the hope of the truth of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get to live with the Lord every day. He lives in us. We get to walk with him. How is God using us to transform not only our own lives, but also our world around us? where joy is brought to work. Love is brought into the family. I mean, we could go on and on about this. When you begin to walk with Christ and God begins to change you and transform you, everywhere you go, God's life is being exhibited through you, through your attitudes, through your actions. Because Jesus Christ is alive and he lives in us. Wow. Are people coming to us and asking us, what's this hope that you've got? And are we ready to give an account for the hope that we have in Christ with boldness when they ask? Let me give you a a few proofs. I got time. (laughs) Proof number one, the empty tomb. Don't you love that one? How many of you have been to Russia? Have you ever been in uh, Red Square in Moscow? One of the creepiest moments of my life. Forgive me. I love Russia. It was a fascinating place. People there are amazing. But one of the creepiest moments of my life was walking uh, through where uh, Lenin's tomb is. What? There he is. <laughs> I don't think he's a god. He's dead. Pretty simple, right? Proof number two, large crowd witnesses, over 500 at one time. 
Right? Proof three, the women as well as the disciples who witnessed the Lord. Multiple times, different places, different smaller groups of people. He, he came in to the room and suddenly he, he appeared to them. He was on uh, the road of uh, Emmaus. I, I mean, all over the place. He broke bread with them. Hey, touch me. This wasn't just a vision. We're not talking about a, fan, a phantom, a ghost, a spirit. We're talking about Jesus Christ in the flesh. And this happened multiple times over a period of time after the resurrection, before the ascension. Proof number four, he changed the lives of his half-brother James and others. You know, James didn't believe in him. I I mean, put yourself in James' place. That's my half-brother. And he's God? Right. Come on, Mom, you got to be kidding me, right? He grew up with them. He would have seen them in every conceivable circumstance as a brother. And what a beautiful truth. Later on in life, he says, he's my Lord. He's not just my brother, he's my Lord. Folks, think about that. It's incredible. James becomes one of the leaders in the church of Jerusalem. How many lives have been changed? Folks, do you realize we're a testimony? We're a testimony of the life of Christ and the resurrection. When we begin to say yes, how many people can we go around right here and we can begin to take testimony after testimony after testimony of how your life has been radically altered by the Lord Jesus Christ? Amen. We're a testimony. Millions of people had their lives absolutely altered by the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Christ. The conversion of Paul. (laughs) Can you make it up? One moment Paul's ready to kill all the Christians and is working towards that. The next moment he's out there proclaiming Christ. I mean, the religious leaders were like, what? What are you doing? And they tried to kill him. I mean, you'd think you would take note and go, Paul, what happened here? What's your story, man? What's going on? The conversion of Paul is phenomenal. What a proof. What a testimony. I mean, there's all kinds. The apostles died for the Lord. You you think that they were willing to do that before the resurrection? Peter was denying them three times. They were all fleeing. They wanted nothing to do with it. They were like, what? They were scared. They ran. After the Holy Spirit came upon them, look at what we see. With boldness, standing before the Sanhedrin, You make the decision, should we obey men or should we obey God? Wow. I mean, there's, I've rolled like four or five different proofs into one proof here, but the tomb was guarded by the Romans. They 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 were military specialists. The rolling away of the stone, the broken seal of the Romans, they had sealed it. This is a, you know, this is Roman issue here. You mess with this, you die. The guards knew that if they didn't do what they were supposed to do, they would die. The behavior of the Roman guards in terms of fleeing, the payoff to keep the guards silent. Boy, not to mention the shifting of worship from basically Saturday, the Sabbath, to Sunday, the first day of the week. Why did they do that? Because of the resurrection. 
the authenticity of the historical account, the boldness of the disciples in contrast, all of those things. Professor Thomas Arnold, he's a famous author. He wrote The History of Rome. He was appointed to the chair of modern history at Oxford. He was well acquainted with the value of evidence in determining historical facts. And he, he states this. Listen to this. I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God both given us or have given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Wow! There's not any single fact in history that is more well attested to than the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brooke Faust Westcott, another English scholar, says this, raking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Nothing but the antecedent assumption that it must be false could have suggested the idea of deficiency in the proof of it. Wow. People who don't want to believe, therefore ignore the facts. Well, I would encourage you, look up Gary Habermas. Look at his book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. Look up William Lane Craig. Look up some of these guys and look at what they've written and look at how they've researched this and studied it. Google it. Uh, it's, you know, great way to go. Lee Strobel. I think fundamentally the question becomes, how has the resurrection changed our lives? And if not, why not? Why not? You know, I I fear we're more worried about America than we are about the kingdom of God sometimes. I love America, folks. Love it. Many of you have served and died. Amen, Chad. (laughs) Many of you have served. Many of you have family members that have died. Folks, fundamentally, we're here for the kingdom of God. And the question is, are we willing to yield our lives to Christ, knowing that the resurrection is true, it's a fact, and say, Lord, however you want to use our lives, it's okay with us. We get more worried about the Dow Jones. It's been doing all kinds of stuff lately, hasn't it? Many of you have been tracking that, and I get it. NASDAQ, S&P. But folks, how concerned are we about eternity? Because that's the issue here. That's the issue. Are we willing to say yes to the Lord and follow him, understanding that the central life message of the gospel of God's grace is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. 
Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.